remember Maya putting on an enormous feast to celebrate our move to the new house in Muscat. She invited all her friends, and she had to spread out a very long tablecloth to hold all of the food. Salim was in elementary school then, and Mohammed seemed a perfectly ordinary nursing baby. Maya was happy and sparkling that night. After the party, she slipped on her dark blue nightshirt. Do you love me, Maya? I asked her, once everyone else was asleep. She was startled. I could see that. She said nothing, and then she laughed. She laughed out loud, and the tone of it irritated me. Where did you pick up these TV show words, she asked. Or maybe it's the satellite dish out there. It's the Egyptian films. Have they eaten up your mind? Mohammed trying to stand up on my knees and then tugging hard at my beard. Maya slapped him and he cried. I never dared shave off my beard until after my father died. And when they started literacy classes, Maya entered the sixth year straight away since she already knew how to read and write as well as having some basic maths. Maya, I said to her, Mohammed is still tiny. Go to school when he's older. I want to learn English, she said. That was before we got the dish at home. And surely, when I asked my question, Maya was wearing the dark blue nightshirt, when I asked whether she loved me, that dish hadn't appeared yet, and I wasn't following any TV programs or watching any Egyptian films. Then my father, declining fast in the Nahda hospital, when I stuck my hand out to meet his, he knocked it away. When I marched in his funeral, my knees abandoned me. Mohammed was only a year then. And when I asked Maya, do you love me? She laughed. She laughed, loud enough to shatter every wall in the new house. Her laughter, the children fled from it. Now that was from um, Celestial Bodies. Yes, by Jochel Hardy, translated. That is Marilyn Booth's translation. And this is an Omani novel that we're going to be talking uh, about on today's episode. So reading was Marsha Links-Qualey. This is Ursula Lindsay. And this is the Bulak podcast coming um, from Rabat, Morocco. But uh, ranging... 29. Oh, thank you. I'm not sure at this point what episode number it was, so I was just going to actually like skim <laughs> skim over that. And uh, so coming to you from Morocco, but uh, ranging today over literature uh, from Oman, from Syria, from Netherlands, the Netherlands and Morocco. Uh, we're going to be talking today about this novel, Celestial Bodies, by Joch El Hardi, that has just been on the International Man Booker uh, 2019 long list, and this is the first time two Arabic novels have ever been long listed. It, it it hasn't been around in its current form for that long. Two Arabic books are long listed. One is Mezen Maruf's Jokes for the Gunman, and one which is, I think, was could have been pretty expected. And then this one was definitely a surprise. I don't think it got any reviews uh, outside of a couple of blog reviews. So I think this really kind of exploded into the international literary scene quite abruptly. Yeah, I certainly, I actually, once you mentioned it to me, and I should say this is like yet another book you brought to my attention. This is like yet another instance of the many side benefits of having a podcast with you, which is that you, you know, email me and on a, on a Wednesday night and say like, look, this book just got nominated and I happen to have already read it and here's the PDF. <laughs> um, uh, Not that I ever shared a PDF with anybody in my life. Just for review purposes. <laughs> I hope I'm not getting you 
in trouble, um, just so that we can have the pleasure of discussing it. But uh, the, this award is an award for literature in translation, literature from anywhere in the world in translation. And um, this Omani novel is, from the excerpt, you can kind of tell, there's like a lot of characters. It spans a long period of time. At least 130 years. So do you want to try and summarize the plot? Or do you want to try and give yeah, a... I would. I would love to, actually. So I think this is um, a beautiful and deserving novel. And I th- uh, um, I'm very delighted to find it on the Man Booker International long list, which I think I agree with what Deborah Smith, who's a Korean translator, said that this is the best year for the Man Booker International long list. It's a... Um, it, it recently changed, so it used to be a prize like the Nobel Prize for a writer's whole oeuvre. Uh, Nagib Mahfouz was, for instance, on the long list in the old version. Um, he, there, this, she's uh, this, only the sixth uh, Arabophone writer ever to make this list. Um, and I think the first, that definitely the first that's sort of come out of nowhere. This novel... It, I think, as you can kind of tell uh, from the excerpt that we read, there's a lot of time slippage. So you might be in in a moment flying from um, Oman to the Frankfurt airport and also in the same paragraph being hung upside down in a well. You know, you might be 60 years old and and flying in an airplane to to the Frankfurt uh, airport and also being... Uh, 10 years old and being hung upside down in a well as as punishment. So there's a lot of um, each each section is 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 wrapped around a particular character and there's uh, characters from largely kind of two, three really interlinked families uh, from this village. And there's kind of two patriarchs. Uh, and this is not at all chronological. So if I make it sound chronological, I'm misrepresenting the novel. But well, there's there's alternating chapters, right? Some of them are narrated all the way throughout by one male character, Abdullah. Yes, Maya's uh, husband, who is undergoing a lot. He's like remembering, and so the, the right. He's in the airplane. And there's a lot of this kind of back and forth, I thought quite well rendered, like the sort of way, the, the quality of sort of thoughts popping into your head I was and memories confused. popping into your head. Yes. I, I found that was really wonderfully done, both by the author and by Marilyn, such that I never felt like, wait, when am I? Am I in 1930 or 1960 or am I in 2010? I thought so too. I thought there was something stylistic. I can't quite put my finger on it actually, but that renders the kind of um, restless quality of someone who is having, like remembering and also remembering with a lot of emotion because he seems, it's not like a calm remembrance. He seems like a person actually slightly distressed at the sort of looking back over his life. Right. So there's this kind of energy to it. Um, But it also doesn't feel like sort of just... Sometimes stream of consciousness can seem a little lazy to me in writers. Like, people can't figure out how to plot stuff, and so they just sort of start, you know, they, they think they, they just adopt it as a stylistic, as a shortcut to seem stylish and to get around plot. No, plotting. I think this is absolutely necessary to what she's trying to do, this sort of anti-romantic, anti-nationalist history, where instead of moving forward in time, we're digging deeper and deeper into specific moments. So we're driving downward instead of instead of going forward in time in any way. 
Um, and, and like with Abdullah, one of the great, uh, and also, so with this all this time slippage, you could potentially, I think, get confused or forget what, what are we concerned about. But for instance, Abdullah, his mom dies mysteriously when he's a child. And as, as he reappears throughout and kind of rethinks through little pieces of history, and of course other characters also, such as uh, Zarifa, who sort of, I mean, she was <laughs> the family slave slash his stepmom person, um, his father's mistress, uh, and uh, so what happens? What happened to his mother? Oh, she died mysteriously. You know, he was told, um, you know, sort of a jinn was blamed. But as, you know, so there are like these aha moments throughout the, the text where you're learning more about how she died and why and how that was important to the family and also what it means about Omani history. And it, it really deepens out so wonderfully uh, to... Omani history from the 1880s through to now. Uh, I mean, I, you know, not, they're not being that large of a pool of Omani novels. It, uh, I, I, I'm willing to declare this the great Omani novel <laughs> right now. It's, it's also, I mean, it certainly has, it's certainly ambitious in that way where clearly the author has sort of set herself the task yes. of kind of encapsulating um, historical change, social change, but like you say, well, you said anti-romantic and anti-nationalistic, mm. like f from this very, um, not at all in a sort of like sentimental or romanticizing way. So there's a lot of stories about, because it's a story of two families, you know, one of the main events in life and social life is, of course, is marriage. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of the stories taken up with, like, the various successful or unsuccessful couplings of, of characters. The, these marriages are rendered, um, it's not a particularly rosy picture, but the fact that it's not rosy is sort of also not a tragedy, it's just the way it is. Right. I, I mean, all of them are nuanced in their particular way. There is one character, Maya's sister, Khalwa, who is very... She reads Harlequin romances, and she she waits for her cousin because he loved her as a child, and she rejects all these other suitors, and eventually she is married to him, and he's actually in Canada cheating with on her with somebody all the time, and everybody else finds her ludicrous. But she, in her own mind, this is her story. But then, eventually, in middle age, you know, she can no longer... Once he comes back, he's kicked out by his Canadian girlfriend, and he does come back, and he is sort of kind to her. Then all these... The, the years of humiliation sort of come back up inside her. So I think there's, there's all sorts of um, not being able to just forget about the past, not being able to simply move on, that the past is sort of continuing to have these thorns and continuing to grow up inside. So there are a number of scenes where, okay, slavery is over now. Uh, you know, when Abdullah's father, for instance, Merchant Suleiman, is, is dying, he, he is, you know, maybe he has dementia or something. In any case, he's remembering that slavery is still 
exists. And, um, you know. What's more, he's forgotten that slavery has been abolished. He's forgotten. So he continues to sort of, like, call out for people to be punished or to appear before him. Right, right. Um, So in, you know, in the the narrative, in a way, I mean, slavery continues to exist through... 2000, whenever, whenever is the last year of the, it was published originally in 2010. So I imagine it ending in 2010. So that's a big theme. And there's this one, there's one female character in particular. I mean, it's a, it's a book full of like strong, interesting, surprising female characters. And there's one character in particular you mentioned, Zarifa, who is a a slave who is emancipated during her own life, who is the mistress of one of these patriarchs who um, is the sort of uh, surrogate mother of, of one of the Omani boys, and then, of course, and has a son of her own, and and who I thought the character is really well rendered. Like, there's these scenes where she's interacting with the other women in the household who have higher status than her and are trying constantly to sort of put her down, but she's basically unputdownable, mm. and she just kind of takes up all the space that she can and is like constantly verbally jousting with them is really good at using like proverbs and sayings and is sort of irrepressible although I kind of felt like and I didn't finish the book I just started the book there must be some tragic undertone to this constant struggle to have to there is impose yourself there is what I don't want to give too much away in a in a novel that is about sort of constant, a constant state of discovery. Mm. But yes, it, it, she's not a, none of, no, none of the characters are triumphant or heroic. Some characters sort of come to terms with their lives, but nobody wins anything or nobody just sort of scores a lucky break. There's no happily ever after for anybody. People just, there are some relationships and lives where people come to terms with themselves and there are some where they don't. Mm. But there's no like, and then they were emancipated. And and then women got the vote. And then whatever. There's n- there's nothing. There's no moment where um, <laughs> there's actually a sort of a ridicule of like um, uh, Nizar Qabani poetry and this, you know, this romanticism married with romantic nationalism. Is he ridiculed by name? He is ridiculed so by this name. So this is a woman after my own heart. <laughs> she is wonderfully... Caustic. Caustic, yes. And Marilyn does, a, I think, a fantastic job well, of maintaining the humor and even, like you were saying, these proverbs. She rhymes them, which I, was, I just love. I was going to say, so one of the reasons that this book is clearly has made this list that it is this discovery is because it is really brilliantly translated by Marilyn Booth, who everything I've ever seen her translate has been fantastic. And like, who just also seems to be ready to kind of take on anything, like try uh, from different parts of the Arab world, different genres. And yes, the proverb, she makes it seem so easy. The dialogue and the proverbs, it's all just lovely and alive. And And you just, if you, if you jump into it and you, swim along with the rhythm of it. I mean, you can just, the the underlying rhythm, she's really got it. It's so fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's very nice. It's kind of full of surprises. Even to me, I was slightly surprised. So it's this book, you read the description and, you know, it tells you it's, it's about, you know, three generations of especially the women in this Omani family. Right. And then the only character who speaks in the first person voice is a man. 
Abdullah, right? And you're almost like, well, that goes against the grain of my expectation of what this book that's sort of about what women have been through. Uh-huh. But I like it. I like that she... she for, like these choices, I think are are motivated and are sort of interesting, and the women are all there. And for some reason, she decided to sort of imaginatively inhabit the husband, right? Who is enamored and fascinated and sort of mystified by his wife all his life. Yes, I think maybe that's what I mean. It's great to also see these women from somebody who doesn't get them, and you know, I think all the the men. I think one of the the wonderful things that binds the novel together is that everybody feels caged and trapped by their life. Uh, the the privileged men, the in, the enslaved men, the privileged women, the enslaved women. Everybody is sort of fighting against parental expectations and societal expectations, and of course, literal slavery and patriarchy. Like the like the male character, his reminiscences of his father are kind of heartbreaking. Like his yeah. whole relationship with his father is sort of heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, and well, and his relationship with his mother, who he never knew, right? It, who, who, who through the course of the book, I was never surprised in a way. I constantly, as we constantly learn new things about her and about her death, I was never surprised in a way that I felt like, well, that feels fake. But I was surprised in a way of like, if I lived on that street and I had heard this new bit of information, I would have been like, oh my God, that's not what I thought would happen. That's a rare gift to sort of like have surprises that are both don't not, don't seem outlandish and yet are are, are, are what genuine surprises. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, so it's a it's a it's a, it's a quite remarkable book. Um, and then there's another book that we liked that we already talked about. The other um, book that was translated from Arabic that's on the list this year. Right, Mez and Maruf's Jokes for the Gunman, which was translated by Jonathan Wright and published by Granta. I think that was a one that I I certainly expected to be on the Man Booker International long list. Uh, it, it's gotten a lot of press i think it it's it's a known entity in the, in the world whereas this book was much more of a quiet it got no no press and no attention whatsoever they did publicize it as this um the first omani woman who's been translated into english and i i think it's it may be the only the second omani novel to have been translated into english and omani novel writing sort of not being a traditional, you know, poetry being much more of an uh, Omani genre. Um, have you ever been to Oman? I have not. I mean, neither. It's on my list, though. So. Yes, I would. I would love to. If anyone wants to invite me to their events, there, there's any literary events going on in Oman, Marsha and I would like to come. <laughs> That'd be great, actually. I know, I've always wanted to go. Um, sorry, you were saying yeah, there, so there's been very few books trans- from Oman basically translated basically, into English, but there are a, f- a few. Well, basically, um, very few novels. I mean, when she talks about literature in this, Omani literature in this book, which there's a lot of poetry that appears. I mean, there's a lot of Mutanebi and Al-Ma'ari uh, and, and a lot of um, classical literature that appears. Uh, there are some, um, there is some Omani literature that appears. It's all poetry. I think that's been the the form that has been most popular, most used in, in in Oman. So the novel is a relatively sort of recent grappling with 
uh, Hussein al-Ibri, who was one of the Beirut 39, he's an Omani novelist. And he, he had said there, there aren't Omani novels. So this was 2009, um, which, you know, he didn't really mean it literally, but that there's not a big field of Omani novels. There's only been one uh, Omani novel that was long listed for the International Prize for Arabic Fiction ever. Um, and that was by Abdulaziz al-Farsi, Earth Weeps, Saturn Laughs, and that has been translated into English by William Hutchins. And I don't think that you need to run out and read it. Uh, but this book, I, I do think that you... If you love books and you love the interesting things that can be done with... It's not an easy book, you know, sort of a... It's not a slog, though. It's no, pretty it's gripping. Definitely, it's, it's, I think it's lovely, but I, I did make the mistake of going on Goodreads and reading people's... You know, the person who went there expecting um, a novel about Omani women's liberation is disappointed. Yeah, but I don't know, with the sort of gradual revelation of secrets and stuff, I, th I thought it was pretty, um, you know, narratively dramatic, not so, like, she's trying to be a little, um, you know, formally daring, but it's not, like, formally daring in such a sort of art house way that it's, like, difficult to... No, I felt that every formal choice that she made was from the depths of her project. You know, that there was a, a slippage between times, not as an experimental thing, but there was a slippage between times because she wanted to show how history doesn't disappear, history is not moving forward. So everything I thought was organic to her project. Yeah. I really enjoyed this book. And I wanted to read a, a sort of second passage. So the first passage was um, anti-romantic. And this, this second passage is about Zarifa, um, who is talking to her husband, uh, husband being a term that I'm sort of using loosely, her owner, um, Suleiman married her off to this man who was kidnapped and enslaved during his lifetime. So he has a different experience of slavery than she does. She was born into, into slavery. It was her grandfather. It was her grandfather who was, who was enslaved. Um, so she was the third generation enslaved. He spoke through clenched teeth. Listen to me. Merchant Suleiman raised me, and yes... He put me through a little schooling, and he found me a wife, but it was all for his own self-interest, all because he meant me to serve him, and to have my wife as his servant too, and then my children later on. No, Zarifa, no. Merchant Suleiman has no claim on me. We are free. The law says so. Free, Zarifa. Open your eyes. The world has changed. But you just keep on saying the same words over and over. Ya Habibi, Ya Sidi, my master, my honored master. Well, everybody's gotten educated and gotten jobs. You've stayed exactly where you always were, the slave of Merchant Suleiman. Like that is all there is. He's just an old man who can't even keep his hands steady. Open your eyes, Zarifa. We're free, and everyone is his own master, and no one owns anyone else. And of course, this character, he, he, he This leaves. character splits, yeah. He, take, he takes off from the household. Yeah. Um, I've seen very few literary treatments of the history of slavery in this part of the world, and especially, like, of how intertwined, like, this so intimately with, like, a family history. 
Yeah, well, Oman, I think, was one of the last countries worldwide to officially abolish slavery. They did so in 1970. So uh, the history is, I think, mm. right there in in living people's living memories. Um, yeah, but I think the way she did this novel could be instructive for anybody who wants to write about painful and violent histories, the way the past is intertwined in the present and how it's not dead, it's not it's not gone, it, it's still alive inside our bodies now. Mm. So, um, shall we talk about Jokes for the Gunman a tiny bit? Or should I sort of introduced it earlier, but we actually weren't finished talking about our, our Omani novel. And, I, and we've already talked about it on a previous episode. So, um, it's another book in a very, very completely different vein because it's sort of very much in the here and I mean it, that deals with the, with recent past because yes. it deals with like the civil war Lebanese in civil war. Lebanon, um, but feels much more kind of like written in the present tense. I would say right, it's like it's not. Uh, I mean, of course, ev- you know, everything has past baggage but it's not sort of trying to excavate the past so much as talking about a present that like can't escape the past right it's right. just like and yeah this seems trapped in a particular time rather than trapped in many times right right and so i can't remember what episode we talked about this book but we can certainly link to that i mean we, we both liked it a lot it's sort of these inter uh, short stories that are sort of connected that have similar themes it's a lot about uh, sort of manhood i would say um, fatherhood sort of a bit and 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 then also it's it's very dark it has a lot of sort of almost images of like bodily harm or disfigurement or you know loss of one kind or another and it's also very poetic so he was a poet and these are sort of his poems and many of his poems were somewhat grotesque poems of the body sort of stretched out into land, short story landscapes that you can live inside for longer. And I think it is humorous, although it's, you know, never a lighthearted humor. Yeah, it's not ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, I think, I th- I'm pretty sure the word I used to describe it previously was that it made me kind of queasy. Yes, you did. <laughs> but, but, in, but I mean, not, not, not meaning that it's not good, um, just that uh, I, I sort of also felt like I had to read it in, like, small doses. But yeah, that's, uh, that's Jokes for the Gunmen by Mazen Maruf and translated by, do you remember? Jonathan Wright. By Jonathan, okay. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's another book on this uh, long list that neither one of us had heard of before, but you at least received a que- questions about. Right. Um, and that has some connection to Morocco because it's partly set here. But this is uh, a novel called The Death of Murat Idrisi mm-hmm. by Tommy Waringa. I'm going to... No, Tommy Waringa is the translator. No. no, Tommy, Tommy wrote it. is the author, and it's and translated Sam. by Sam Garrett. Right, from the Dutch. And all we've seen, really, is a review of it in The Guardian. Yes, yeah. I, I have not got my hands on the book. Um, I was asked if I knew any Moroccan women's opinions of it. And that's because the two main characters are like Moroccan Dutch or Dutch Moroccan women who travel back to Morocco. And actually, wait, I'm going to pull up the 
the review. So I found I found the article and it, it describes these two female characters as children of two kingdoms. They carried the green passport of the Royaume du Maroc and the red lead one of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, but in both countries they were above all foreigners. I find it quite interesting and I figure we're gonna see more of these characters that are sort of whose nationality is actually hard to define. You know, binational uh, characters, immigrant characters, like characters that you can't sum up actually who they are or even where the book is set that easily. I figure these stories Yeah, I did get one kind of, uh, I thought, offended response from a Dutch woman who told me they're not Moroccan women, they're Dutch women who had of Moroccan ancestry. But that was after somebody had said... Because we, there was a slight, we, we should have asked for information about this book on Twitter because we've n- neither n- we haven't heard it. It's not available in Morocco, of course. It hasn't been translated into French or Arabic, so it's really not on people's radar here. Uh, but there was a response by somebody saying more or less like, "Well, you know, books about Moroccan women by white guys are not something I'm going to investigate." And so I think that's right. What that Maybe lady was she was offended by to. that, yeah, rather than by me asking about it could be I mean I think um the review the review did make me make me queasy slightly uh uh, you know certainly there is a history of imperialist literature that makes people from colonized nations uh into caricatures and there were a couple of lines in this even just this tough, sexually confident and liberated Freya, like, oh my God, does every Arab woman have to be tough, sexually confident and liberated if she's, you know. But if it was the opposite, if she was like, you know, repressed like, and timorous, people would think that's a stereotype too. Yeah, well, like, those two things, having this as a binary. I mean, I am neither tough, sexually confident, liberated, nor am I repressed. I'm just... A person. Well, okay, so there's two things. One is, like, we don't know if it's the reviewer right. who's trading in some stereotypes and, like, simplifying the plot of the book. I'm trying to find... There was one passage that gave me slightly pause in the reviewer's description of the book. Right. Because you can't tell... Right, um, they arrive there, they're besieged by flies. Uh, right, there was something about sort of like, you know... I can't... Besieged by flies, filth, and poverty. Right, exactly. And I and, and that and that slightly gave me pause. But you never know if it's yes, the person exactly. writing the article who's sort of, you know, projecting their stereotypes onto this book or if it's actually in the book. So my first, I would say, like, strongly held belief is that there's... Although we're doing it right now, but we're doing it to like, is that you can't judge a book until you've read it. The judging a book based on like the summary of its plot or the identity of its author, I think is kind of silly. We've got to read it. Yeah, well, uh, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say I have to read it, but this book has been long listed and the judges include Pankaj Mishra and Nathan John and Maureen Freely. I think that, you know, if it was grossly misogynistic and and <clears throat> trafficked in re- absolutely ridiculous stereotypes, they would have not done that. There are some books, you know, Tangerine, I never want to read. I don't need to. Well, sure, there's stuff that you don't want to, you don't, 
you're not going to maybe bother reading because you, you figure you can tell. But did you do you feel like clearly there's something like you suspect that this is not a good book just because of the topic and where it's written and who it's written by? No, I only feel we I mean, of course, there's a history of dudes from colonial powers writing oversimplified and women from colonial powers writing silly caricatures of people. But to stupid devil's advocate, there's a history of people from male authors in Arab countries writing yeah. simplified, stereotypical yeah, yeah. versions of female characters. Absolutely. Like, it's not, you know, just... No, that's not specific to... Uh, uh, that maybe we can say men everywhere are can be good at, at that. Um, yeah, I, I mean... It, I, I, I recently saw that Saud al-Sanusi, uh, who's a Kuwaiti novelist, is writing his first novel where a woman is the main character. And it, he was interviewed in Vogue about it, or Vogue Arabia. And he had talked about how he had Bufayna Alaysa, who's a Kuwaiti women author who they seem to be friends, read parts of it, and that she had commented on how his women thought about their own anatomies. <laughs> But it was wonderful of him. Like she gave him constructive criticism. She gave him some constructive criticism. It seemed like that he was having women discuss their boobies or think about, you know, their parts in ways that maybe <laughs> are not maybe particularly we don't realistic. Really think about yeah. it that way. Yeah. So, but he was open to asking her, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Well, so here's the thing, though. I I think. Right now, one of the criticisms I saw online, and right now I'm basically having a sort of, but this is so common to my experience now and the day and age we live in, is that I have mental arguments with tweets by people I don't know in my head after the fact because I don't actually engage on discussion on Twitter because I find it a very hard platform to like really talk to people on, especially people I don't know. So I'll just see something pass and kind of be like, mm, I don't know if I agree with that you know, and then think about it for a while. And I'm not trying to, like, pick a fight with anybody in particular, but I just, um, some of the reactions that I saw to this book, and it's not just to this book, it, it happens seemingly a fair amount now, where people can be very quickly, very instantly dismissive of something that they haven't even necessarily, like, read or watched on the basis of what they think is the sort of problematic positioning of the author inherently, like that this per this category of person should not be telling this category of stories because, because I guess, you know, it's always going to be uh, problematic for them to do so. Uh, seems to be the, the argument. I think I disagree with that. I think I don't think that I think the problem is always going to be in the story and how it's told. And I think, so now more male authors seem to be interested in telling women's stories, which, you know, lo and behold, because there's just been this big pressure. But the thing is, there has been this, so, so we're telling male authors two things at once, I think sometimes is like, you need to stop having this like entirely male worldview where like you don't have any female characters and you don't incorporate women's point of view. But then also if they do, we may tell them, like, that's not your story to tell. Like, who are you to write about this? Because... Right. Well, I think it's a difficult... It can be a difficult position. I know when I started reading Jokha El-Harthi's book, and she had enslaved characters in it, and she 
I believe, comes from an upper middle class background in Oman. Uh, I was like, I don't know, I felt slightly trepidatious, like, um, can she really do this in a, in a way that doesn't seem stereotypical? And of course, I am not um, a person from a enslaved background, whether Omani or otherwise, so I can't judge from a personal position. I guess that's, you know, that's the thing that's difficult, is what we're asking is that, is there a Moroccan woman who's a binational Moroccan Dutch woman who's read this and can say, yes, this is my real experience. But also, what would that prove if one person who has the right identity validated or not this story? Like, I mean, I think... Obviously, there are stories that are just like ignorant, like there are people who try to write something and they don't know, they don't know what they're writing about. And they fail at writing it for that reason, like, because they because they don't have the knowledge, and they don't have the experience, they don't have the empathy, and they don't have the imagination to do it. And I think they fail on the facts, like in the writing, it just is a bad book. Right. Although, so, let's say, for instance, there's a book I'm reading now, and there's a there's a Western woman character who's actually in Oman, and she is saying, oh, it's, it's such a shame. What in, back in our countries, um, life is not good anymore. Women aren't catcalled anymore. You know. And the book is written by... Uh, I, I'm not going to say. But I mean like a <laughs> but man. By a man. Or, yes, so, by a man. And, and not a, West, a non-Western man? Yes. Okay, so that just shows everybody can stereotype everybody. Right. I'm just saying that many people read that and thought that that was a thing, really, that a Western woman might say, whereas for me, a really, you got to prove it to me that there's really, what is her background that she's, like, yearning to be sexually harassed? Uh, I, I need to know. Well, you know... That, could, that woman could exist. Catherine Deneuve and a bunch of yes. French actors wrote a, wrote yes. a whole, you know, bet about how, you know, they mourn the days where yes. men just, hit on women. So. Right. I just need a little bit of reason why. <laughs> I can't, this can't just stand in for all Western women are like so lonely for the days of being sexually harassed. Right. Okay. So wait, because this is so complicated, but so interesting to me, these questions. And I feel very strongly about it. And I've also been trying to figure out why, because frankly, why do I care? You know, like, (laughs) why does it matter to me? And I think it's because I, well, one, I, I, I care about literature. It's sort of my thing and then like I put myself in the place of readers and of writers like I sort of imagine myself in their place a lot right Right. so are you allowed to write about Moroccan women and also because the judgment is both on the read on you as a writer but also on the reader like what kind of a person wants to read this sort of story so more judgment goes on the writer but also like I've had people tell me like you shouldn't read this or you shouldn't read so and so or you know this isn't and that also gets me very riled up when people tell me like that something that I'm making a kind of moral mistake by reading something mm. is a hard thing to sort of agree with when that when when that is actually a work that um, gives you pleasure. Uh, so, like another thing I saw online recently was somebody just like very offhandedly, basically like dismissing Lolita in the context of saying like she'd canceled a date with a guy who had told her oh, that I it saw was that his as favorite well. book, <laughs> and you know. Maybe it's a bad call for a man to say that that's his favorite book to a woman that he hasn't gone on his first date with. But it happens to be one of my favorite books. Like, that book blew me away when I read it. And I 
really don't think it's it's not an endorsement of pedophilia like that's not what the book is i think reading nabokov is an okay position to have in the world i know but there's so much of this kind of hot takes and sort of instant dismissal and very quick judgments of people and of work of work that takes like years to make i i'm a little you know reluctant to get on board with some of this and um with this thing of who can tell whose story so obviously there's like tons of stories that I would hesitate to write if I was even writing Mm. but not because I think like it's completely not allowed I just think because I couldn't pull it off I couldn't do it right right but if I could do it if I really thought I have the insight I can I think I don't think there's anything that makes it pro- prohibited to tell the story of somebody with a completely different identity or life experience from you. Oh no, I mean, so if I think about Egyptian novels where there are American characters, for instance. Now this is sort of we don't have the sort of freight of colonial power or anything. I'm just talking about who can do it and whose portrayals come off as totally weird and corny and I don't recognize anything and what America you know there there are books that I've read where you know Americans all go into nude um co-ed saunas together like what no we don't (laughs) I'm pretty sure I would have noticed that or like Makawi Saeed has um in in Swan Song he has a character named Marsha which I always take very personally and I find her to be I wrote such an anger review of that book I I disliked that book very much for all its portrayals of women, Western and non-Western. Right. Well, one of them actually has my very unusual name. So he didn't know me at the time. So it was not me. Right. Uh, But then there, like Sanala Ibrahim, Azedin Shukri Fasher, Radwa Ashur. I I mean, there are a number of Egyptian authors, who most of them who have spent time in, in the United States, who have written amazing characters who feel completely real to me. Right, and that's... I mean, okay, so there is this... Is it a double standard or is it just a recognition of a sort of power differential? So is it... Or what, is it what we're saying is that it's less problematic for people to write about... I don't know, how would you even say it? It's not like the powerless writing about the powerful. You're talking about people from formerly colonized countries writing about people from the colonizing countries. In that direction, it's okay, but in the other direction, it's not because of this sort of, like, history of... I'm not saying it's okay versus not okay. But so this portrayal in this novel where Westerners are constantly in the nude, or Americans in particular are constantly like Which in really the nude Americans together. are totally like prudes. It's, it's, it, this is weird. This, the, okay. We're not Scandinavians, don't you think? Like we're actually not that comfortable with nudity. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> I, I'm not going to be co-ed nude with anybody. So, uh, yes. So, yes. So this portrayal exists, but I don't think it has any power to do harm. Don't, I don't stand behind it. I don't think we should write corny things about people we don't know but but you're saying it's relatively well you're saying there's like a greater responsibility or maybe you're not saying it other I'm just trying to I'm just actually trying to sort of articulate this argument for myself that there is a greater responsibility because of this history of basically we're talking about orientalism with this part of the world or something but like of of your representation of another group of people 
having going alongside with a whole political project of domination. Yeah, I'm which not even saying history. I'm saying, you know, uh, if we're going to, you know, occupy Iraq right now, the kinds of novels that we're writing, if we're going to, you know, if we live in a world where people are going and shooting up mosques in, in New Zealand and killing dozens of people, you know, it's a, it's a, but it's held to a higher standard, but it's, create. Not, it's not impossible to do, I'm not right? Saying, no, like, I'm not we saying both liked Elliot Kala's book, yes. which is set in Baghdad with yes. Iraqi characters yes. that he imagined. And I think he did a very sensitive, interesting job of that. Yes. Well, absolutely. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying I weigh it differently uh, versus a, uh, a corny portrayal of a, even a woman named Marsha. <laughs> I mean, that's for, this is helpful to me, like, to actually kind of think this out, um, because, uh, because I, because I, I am sort of constantly trying to think out how to, um, I think, reconcile the way that, like, awareness of all these sort of issues of, of race, of class, of colonialism and imperialism, of gender, which I think that awareness has to be constantly held. Mm. And then at the same time, how to sort of respect the individuality of stories and of artists and not reduce them to their identity and their position within these fields. Yeah, you know and what I'm the, uh, yes, but I, and then I want to throw in another thing, which uh, Camila Shamsia wrote a piece several years ago now saying more Americans need to write about imperialism and, and that rather than, you know, just setting your story in, you know, Brooklyn or, or Iowa or whatever. I feel that way. I feel like American literature is boring because, like, we, we never talk about... Because it's so parochial. Like, half of it is set in New York. And... Right. <laughs> so she her argument in this piece to oversimplify something I read seven years ago or whenever it was, was that Americans need to grapple with this more and that it needs to, that foreign worlds need to exist in, in American literature. So much like, you know, a man who, okay, well, I'm not going to try and represent a woman because I'm not a woman and I don't know what it feels like to have breasts. You know, then you can write a, a world entirely that erases women. And that's not very interesting or, you know, that could get a bit tedious if there are no women in your world. Yeah, unless sort of what you're represent like your subject is the a part of your subject is 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 the lack of women. I think even that I think everything can be done. It's just a question of how sure. it's done. Right, right. I wouldn't say that all men should stop right stop weaving women characters into their books right. now because they're going to do it in a shitty way. Like Which I feel like you just have to get better at it. I think it's basically is what hap- is what's happening right now. I do read books now where I feel like people are sort of covering their bases a little bit by making sure... I feel like everybody now wants to make sure that they aren't just... You know, that they are being more inclusive, maybe, in their representation. Except, I think, actually, the most glaring thing of all, I'd like like American literature to deal more with the rest of the world, and I'd like it to deal more with fucking money and the economy and Um, class. Right. If there is one thing that is even more completely absent... Well, that's taboo. We're not allowed to talk about money. Completely absent from almost all writing is is the sort of economic underpinnings of life. Mm. 
And I just read this book by this Irish, young Irish writer, Sally Rooney, called Conversations with Friends. Right. And it's sort of, on the surface, kind of a typical coming of age. It's got great, very, like, snappy, witty dialogue and everything. And, and it's sort of this sexy story and this love triangle and this drama. But then under, right underneath it, it's also a lot about money and about how you feel about people who are older and more successful and more established than you and about the precariousness of being like a young creative person and how you have yourself but nothing else. Mm. And I thought, well, this is really cool that this is kind of grappling with this because I find that missing from so much writing. I do think that that's one of our taboos. That we're not meant, we're meant to believe it's all, you know, that it doesn't matter. We're all equals. We're not allowed to talk about it, how there's, you know, a billionaire class and the rest of us. And yeah, I mean, there's just, there's, there's, it's, it's, it's bizarrely absent, I Mm. find, from a lot of creative work. Um, Any sort of dimension of how people actually the sort of economic foundations of their life. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) moving along, there was one other book we wanted to talk about today. Yes, and that is Khaled Khalifa's Death is Hard Work. Uh, It was translated by, forgive me, Leroy Price. Uh, Shall we we admit that we're not sure? I think it's Larry Price, (laughs) but now I'm really second-guessing myself. Um, yeah, well, I've corresponded with her All right. many times, but... I think you're probably right. We've never discussed how to pronounce her name. One never does. No, that's true. So people who've known me for years, some are very certain that my name is Marcia, and some are very sure that my name is Marcia, and if they collide, there can be a big argument. Oh, really? Because... The thing but is, now is you that say I it agree. on the podcast all the time. It's true. Maybe this will stop happening. But the thing is that if if somebody calls me Marcia, I sort of just oh, I run with that. With I go along with it. So they're like, no, she she responds to Marcia. She never corrected. Oh, you're not one of those people who's like, it's Marcia, like who you know makes a point about how your name is pronounced. No, because if I say it's Marcia, then I'm gonna think about the Brady Bunch, and then mm. no. Do you have, I have a, I have a syndrome, I don't know if anybody else has this or if it's just a, a malady of my own, but okay, so as I'm getting older, I'm, you know, know many people and I have trouble sometimes remembering people's names. Mm. Um, you don't remember in your early 20s when like everybody's name just rang like a bell in your head because you'd only met like so many people. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, you know, I remember when I had a great memory, but now, you know, I remember folks, but sometimes I'm think maybe I don't have their name quite right. But what's worse is I've gotten to the point where I know their name, but I am gotten so paranoid about getting names wrong Mm. that I then like either mispronounce it or don't say it or like waffle on it because I'm like psyching myself out by thinking that I may not remember it. I don't know. I want to find out if other people suffer from this or if it is my own particular... All right, well, write yeah. in if you do. <laughs> See, me, I'm so indifferent to my own name that maybe I trod over other people's feelings a little bit. I just kind of mispronounce everything because I don't actually care. Pronounce my name however you fancy it. Uh, yeah, I'm not a stickler for... And I'm not offended if people don't remember mine. It's it, fine. Yeah. It, I it, could be called Arablit. Unless you're <laughs> unless you're citing me in your academic work, and then please actually use my name. Thank mm. you. Okay, so back to the book. So sorry for the digression. 
So, um, death is hard work. I, I mean, I, I liked it. I have a few reservations, but uh, shall we summarize the plot? Yeah, it's kind of a road trip novel. Where that makes it sound so much sunnier than it is. <laughs> it's a road trip novel where a, a father who none of his three kids are that enthusiastic about him dies, and the father extracts a promise from one of the kids right before he dies that they're going to bring him back to his hometown and bury him alongside his sister, who, as we find out through the course of the novel, he was pretty estranged from, um, and because, you know, through his own fault. And uh, so these, but the three siblings who don't really get along with each other either and have developed very different lives all pile in the car with this corpse and attempt to get through what seemed like about 60 gazillion checkpoints to get not very far from Damascus to, to the father's village in order to bury him alongside his, uh, burying him with his family. So there's this sort of, you know, they of course run into trouble like almost instantly. They 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 run into one problem after another. Right. I think at the first serious checkpoint that they get stopped on outside, um, of you know once they're like outside of the city, they are stopped because the father is still listed as like wanted. Right. And, he and was the father is, well. We get very different portraits of the father throughout, but one portrait of the father, probably the one he would want us to remember, is that he was, you know, a heroic revolutionary. And yes, he was wanted. Well, because he was—he spent his last years in one of these towns that are under were under siege, so he's yes. definitely on the uh, uh, sort of free Syrian army side of yeah. the fighting. Um, and but you have this kind of surreal. A scene where police and intelligence officers are saying, you know, that they'll have to hold them and take them back because, you know, he hasn't, he's he's still wanted even though he's dead, basically. Right. And so, you know, the fact that he's dead does not nullify the fact that he's wanted by the authorities and Certainly there's a whole, not. like, process to go through and they have to bribe their way out of that and that's... And get a fax and, oh my God. And right. that's just in the beginning. Right, right. And every... Checkpoint has its own ludicrous uh, set of circumstances in order to get through it. Right. And I mean, so that's one of the things that I enjoyed about the book is this, it's genuinely sort of funny in this really, really dark way. I also think it has some kind of pretty memorable writing. Um, so from the very first pages, at one point they're talking about the father extracting this promise from his son to take his body back to the village and how the son, um, you know, would have liked to refuse um, and explained to his dad that this wasn't a good idea, you know, that this wasn't particularly <laughs> realistic. It says, um, our final moments in this life aren't generally an appropriate time for clear-eyed reflection. Indeed, they always find us at our most sentimental there's no room left in them for rational thought, because time itself has solidified and expanded inside them, like water becoming ice. And I kind of like that mm. image of, it's like thought freezes over, and I, I don't know, you sort of get stuck in some final posture. And then, and then just in terms of the humor that you also find, the very, very dark humor is, so when the son leaves the hospital a couple pages later, 
Um, and he's sort of looking for someone to confide in. His father's just died. So he tells the taxi driver that his father had died an hour ago in the hospital of old age. The driver laughed and informed him that three of his brothers, as well as all of their children, had died a month before in an airstrike. Both went quiet after this. The conversation was no longer on an even footing. And that's like so dark, but I can also just imagine there is some humor to this utter awkwardness of you. You you try you look for some like sympathy because your dad just died, and the and the driver laughs and lets you know that his whole family died, and then you know oh awkward, right? You don't know what to say after that, and, well, and that's a conversation killer, right? Right. So I I I liked those elements a lot um, of just this like really really dark humor. Right, and I, I think in common with the Omani novel that we talked about earlier, there is you are constantly getting to know the characters over the course of the of the book. You see the father from how he would like to be remembered from his own point of view, how you know he would like to be seen as sort of this romantic figure, and his his second marriage, his last marriage, as a sort of romance. But then you see sort of from that woman's perspective and, you know, that it wasn't really this sort of wonderful romance that he would have imagined it, it to be. And so, you know, that there's a sort of a constant process of discovery and getting to know the characters over the course of the book. And they appear, of course, very differently through different people's eyes. Yeah, so I got about halfway through the book and I have to say something happened to me that happens to me with his previous book as well that I read, um, No Knives in the Kitchen of the City, is that it starts out with such a bang, it, it really grabs me, and then his his narration it always becomes quite like stream of consciousness and kind of jumping from the thoughts of one character to the other, you know, so on one page it'll you know, mm. and, the, and the father remembered this, and the son did that, and then that time that the mother did that, and that sort of is very much the style of narration in both books. And for me, after a while, I I kind of um, I I find it a bit fatiguing, or it sort of loses focus. With this one, I kept sort of wanting them to get back to the story with the body in the vehicle because all this intermediary sort of remembering, I don't know, there was something about it that it didn't have a rhythm that sort of kept my attention. There's very little dialogue, so you also don't hear voices. It's just um, sort of accounts of people doing things and feeling things and remembering things and this kind of stream of consciousness. And it gets a little fuzzy for me. I I don't know. Well, see, now I'm going to disagree. (gasps) A first... (laughs) <laughs> at least a, a rarity. It's good, good, good. This is exciting. Uh, I I did not feel I I there was the big through line, which is get dad to his final resting place, mm. and there was the surface tension of the relationships between the three siblings and how insane. I mean, how what a poor choice this was. Really, dad is dead now and we could have just buried him somewhere in Damascus and that really would have been a better idea but of course people just as people make bad decisions at the end of their life people make very bad decisions when their parents die and this is a bad decision so I felt that there was this highway that went through the novel which is moving with this decaying disgusting maggot-ridden corpse in the back of your car to the village 
and then all sorts of sort of spidery tentacles that go out and help us see and then re-see and then reimagine the characters again in this way that it's like um, I thought really kind of thickened our understanding of the conflict in in Syria if you've got like sort of a I, I, I do think that he ta he has a very sort of strong position that this the it's a criminal regime but that that he's also interested in in making nuanced portraits of, of individual humans and their decisions. I'm trying to remember now, is everyone more or less, though, is anti-regime, right? Like all the main characters, like whether they act on it or not. It's not like there's any regime supporters who are, who are significant characters. characters. I mean, he, the, the, um, the guy who originally agrees to take... The son? Bulbul, yes. But he's just scared. No, no, I, I'm saying he lives in a, a pro-regime neighborhood. Right. So we do get to know pro-regime people. Right, yeah, yeah, and that's interesting. And you see the cops and the figures of authorities, but, like, everyone who's in... Like, everyone who you sort of... Invested in. Is 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 anti-regime, or sort of whether they act on it or not, either because they're yes, cynical or they're that's afraid. that's the big question, is yeah. what do you do with that information? Once you have assessed, you know, and you know that, of course, the regime is criminal, then what do you do? Do you, do you flee? Do you keep your head down? Do you pretend to be pro-regime? Do you stand against them in this, in this village where it's, it's clear that things are not going to go your way? Right. I find the the central metaphor like you know powerful and and this and this this sort of I think he came up with a clever and you know this mission that brings the three siblings together like it's 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 both clearly sort of like a a metaphor and then it's also actually works as a narrative device you know they have all these problems and you do get quite invested in like are they going to make it you know, how are they going to get around these various obstacles uh, and in the sort of uh, logistics of it? Uh, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I was just thinking, is it any easier when one has a slight disagreement as and one person likes something and one less? I feel like it's easier to undermine my enthusiasm for something than it is to persuade me to like something that... Yeah, I but didn't... I'm pretty underminable on this. Yeah, I mean, yes, generally I, thought... I think you could undermine my belief that it was successful but you could not undermine my belief that I enjoyed it that you liked it <laughs> which I'm not trying to do and I think you know I, I I think he's he's talented as a writer and clearly and um it may be that I wasn't patient enough with it somehow I I just find something about the actual rhythm of the narration for me does not sort of uh, keep my attention taut. Mm. Um, and, and so from, from, from sort of beat to beat and paragraph to paragraph and page to page, I, uh, it starts to lose a little bit of, of definition. And then like something will jump out at me. I can appreciate the, the, the sort of the talents in it clearly. And I, and, I, and I very much, I find him very interesting as a figure, as a writer, I mean, yes, he he's still a wonderfully charming person. Yes, he I don't does. understand how he does that. I mean, presumably he has a level of international status that if he was, he personally, you know, it's like, um, you know how um, Saad Ala Wanous talked about 
his very existence mm. was sort of um, in the favor of the regime. Look, see, we've got this great writer. He still is alive. We haven't killed him yet. Um, so I think the regime sort of benefits by them from the fact that well, he's he's still alive. But yes, I, I you know he's made a statement that he's in his sixties now. What what does he have to gain from going Leaving. restarting yeah. his life somewhere else? And I find him to be yes, a, a clear-eyed and a romantic. I guess this is the big difference between the two books for me. I do think that there's something fundamentally romantic about Khaled's work, um, not in a in a trite way, but that. Um, a romanticism uh, of human connection, uh, of trying to be better people, of looking for a success to revolution. Um, whether he believes that that is going to happen, it do, you know, does not seem evident in the book. But but that the desire for a better world, I, I think that there's some sort of deep romantic desire for that uh, in his writing. I found that there to be a number of very sweet moments, actually. I, I was, um, I don't know, it ends very darkly, but, um, but there were a number of tenderness, tender moments, I thought. Hmm. Um, and then I have one tiny gripe with it, which is that there's like multiple characters, again, with like a tiresome wife. And, <laughs> and I really... Like the father and the son, right? right? But I think you come to see those women characters differently over the course of the novel. Okay, so again, maybe there's a reevaluation in the second half because I don't understand how these men just end up. Well, particularly the son just seems to sort of end up married to a tiresome woman, as if she just sort of appeared one day. Right. It, well, that's that's. Yeah. I mean, as they sort of reevaluate their narratives as they move along, I think they also reevaluate who their spouses were and how did they get themselves in these in these situations where they imagine that they were totally passive and somebody just sort of came and took over their life. But he's kind of a definition. There's this one main character who is right. very passive. Yes. That's sort of his defining characteristic. Right. Uh, and I think he... So he's got it. You know, in a way, he stands in for the Syrian... People. So how did how did we get ourselves in this position right. where we became the victims? What did what you know? What and we happened? miss every opportunity to sort of ask for what we want. And uh, I like, in fact, I like you know the 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 bossy, irascible brother better. Right. And and then I like some of the characterizations of the relationship between them. I think is 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 very good. Like in the beginning when he sort of says there's there's the two brothers and the sister that one of the, the sister you know, almost enjoys being bossed around by her brother, that, that that's so their dynamic that she sort of acquiesces to it, you know, with almost a sense of the comfort that you get from, like, playing your role, and right. her role in is to be told right. what to do by her brother. And, in fact, every time there's, like, a moment of tension or silence or he doesn't know what to do, he just tells her to, like, stop doing something or do something. That is so true to family dynamics. I found that very good. Yeah, I, I found the relationship between the three siblings very tense and wonderful and nuanced and believable. The, they were, you know, they were maybe my favorite part of the book, the the three characters who you came to know over the course of the book. 
Yeah, yeah. For me, the the sort of current timeline that the the siblings traveling with the that was the part that really kept my attention. It's definitely a book that I'd 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 recommend to people to check out who are interested in Syrian literature. I would probably recommend it to anybody. But I guess, you know, that's where we part ways on the book. Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe that's not fair. Maybe I should say you either recommend it or don't. Why recommend it for some specific purpose or within some specific category? Yeah. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe I should, like, take the time and and go through it to the end. Although I'm, I'm kind of um, usually first impression stick. For me, it depends. If I've read, if I've started reading it on a PDF, my first impression doesn't necessarily mean anything. Well, just reading on a PDF is so terrible. I mean, it's it's not. It's so my unfavorite way of reading a book. Right. I almost feel like it's automatically homework. If yes, I'm reading it exactly. As a PDF. I'm I'm doing my work. If I can go curl up in the sunshine with a paperback and read it, then I'm automatically feeling more joy than if I'm sitting yeah. in front of my computer and scrolling down and I keep losing my place in the stupid PDF. It's no I even now books for review, I've gotten pretty comfortable insisting that I get hard copies. Oh, good for you. Well, timeliness isn't as that big of an issue. Right. For me, and so I just I can do it more justice if I read it that way, I think. Absolutely. I mean, a book has to be pretty fantastic if I'm going to engage with it on a PDF. And they're not practical for taking notes. No, they're, you've got to... And then so many people have PDFs now where you're not allowed to copy and paste into your... Yeah, no, I mean, it is inferior technology. Like, the book is superior technology to any uh, reading device, electronic reading, appeared, reading yes. device. Yeah, like, they have their advantages, but the book remains the best designed reading yeah. device that we have. All right, we're going to end there. Okay. <laughs> on something we agree on. We endorse the book. <laughs> Indeed. We like paper. 